God, I would never throw out a baby. That's a waste of perfectly good protein. Now, look, I'm Jewish, and we're all economists, right? And I know that Tom Cruise will pay a pretty, pretty, flit, a pretty penny in order to eat some baby placenta. So imagine how much he'd pay for the whole baby. Just saying, I got a market here. Lizzie's baby back ribs. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I can say this much. If I had a baby, it would be from an Irishman anyway, and so it wouldn't really matter because they're, they're all so stupid that it would be brain dead. In fact, it would be like a vegetable. So I could actually even make it a vegan meal. Yeah, I, I feel bad if this offends anyone, but, like, I mean, the point of comedy is to make the bitter things in life more palatable, right? I'd like to think of myself as, like, the pineapple juice to the world's cup. Yes. Okay, so that's, that's, that's about it. <laughs> Yay! Ending on a dick joke. Lizzie Stanton, mm. hell yeah. Hey, that China-Italy jo joke at the top with the noodles is fucking fire. Um, Thank you. With the plagues, there were actually, you, you're a Jew, you know there was more than one plague. I feel like you can go through a few of those plagues, possibly. And even like at Costco, you can set one of the plagues. Like, it's raining frogs at Costco. And, um, that Pence Thoughts and Prayers thing was great, and then it all came back around and circled all the way around. It was great. I loved all that Costco material, especially since we're supposed to be social distancing and everyone's like super close to each other. Um, you start talking about dying alone, and I was like, well, right now we all kind of are dying alone because of social distancing. We're more alone than ever, and maybe you can die on a Zoom group chat or something. Like, Actually, I was going to say that this, for me, has been the most social time in my entire life except with no physical attention, which means that it's exactly the same as my entire life has been. Exactly. <laughs> Lots of people to talk to, no one to touch me. Exa exactly. I, I, I feel you, girl. Uh... I don't feel you. I'm not allowed to. <laughs> um, so uh, I felt like with the black, the black people and the water and the swimming, um, there's a couple things, a couple directions you can go. A, uh, there's a stereotype that black people can't swim, so that's a good one to play off of because you already have a black mermaid, and it usually there's a, like a trope that black people aren't good at swimming. Also oh, no, I know, I know. I got oh. that. Also, it was it was a play on to whole, like, you know, like, what was the name of that movie where, like, they threw all the black people in the bottom of the ocean? I don't, um, I don't know. I think they did that during Slay uh, Slavery on the Way Over. Amistad I don't know how they did that. Yeah. But, yeah, they, they drowned a whole bunch of black people back in the 1800s, which is the same time as The Little Mermaid is set. I so see where you're going. They tied, they tied weights and they threw black people who were sick or whatever, the slaves, off the ships. Dear Lord. That, that's... Wow. Well, okay. I didn't get your the maybe like one more line about history to lead. Yeah, I'm a history major, so I know that a lot of my jokes are a little bit highbrow, and people are just like, "She's racist." Right. No, but I, I just didn't get like I, my brain started to go like, "Well, if you're going with," I was like, "Oh, black people aren't good at swimming," or but also that um, their hair they get mad, they get mad about their if they, hair. If their hair gets wet. Girls. Yeah. yeah um, but that was all just me being kind of hack. Uh, oh. So if the black people are going in white face, there might be a thing about zinc oxide there. You know how when you put the white stuff on your nose because it keeps the sun away from the mm -hmm. 80s, zinc oxide. Just that black people would be in white face because of the sunscreen. That's p potential. Oh, um, and you said tater tots, and, that's, and that worked. Um, and, you know, they're just – when you have leftover tater tots, they're cold and not crispy, and that's gross. 
<laughs> but that was really good. And I would even, with that abortion stuff, I think there's two direct. You went with the eating the children, but you can also go with um, stem cells, like uh, harvesting them for other strange things other than just the food that they could possibly sustain us with. But that I mean, I've got so many abortion jokes, it's actually somewhat terrifying. But <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't do well in front of very um, uh, right-wing crowds. <laughs> right. Hey, I have a bunch of abortion jokes. Hey, abortion's important for us to talk about, especially when our civil rights, and well, f- at least for us in the United States, our constitutional rights are starting to be revoked. And um, I mean, what happens with the, I mean, Geez, what happens I- under martial law if you have to get an abortion? <laughs> and that is where I'm going to break in and uh, have a little newsy type uh, report. It's not uh, going to be a newsy. It's going to be uh, thoughtful journalism brought to you by independent uh, sources. <coughs> and... Uh, I think we we can all agree that we should be looking away from the mainstream for our informative uh, materials. So here's the Corbett report. Uh, This is uh, hashtag cyberspace war. And it's about uh, cyberspace war. Corbett Report on Mutiny Radio, April 19th, 2020, at 10.05 in the p.m. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to New World Next Week. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And I'm James Evan Pilato from MediaMonarchy.com. It beggars belief that any head of state would abuse a public health emergency to tighten his grip on power. We've definitely got that story, plus mesh networks for freedom. But first, on another important New World Next Week episode for what's essentially the new normal world order, the cyberspace war is just getting heated up. Massive live fire exercise, April 8th, today with Starlink satellites. This coming just pretty much straight from the military's mouth. The Air Force will test SpaceX-developed technology in a demonstration that will reportedly include a live-fire exercise targeting drones and cruise missiles, the latest test of experimental technologies. The April event today, again, that's... uh as we're taping this. The next iteration of the military's Advanced Battle Management System exercises takes place at Marine Corps Air Station Yuma, Arizona, right here in New Mexico at the White Sands Missile Range and, of course, Eglin Air Force Base down in Florida. The demo will include elements of the U.S. Space Command and STRATCOM with SpaceX Starlink mission, which aims to, quote, provide Internet access with proliferated constellations made up of thousands of satellites in low Earth orbit. Now, at Space Space Foundation's 35th Annual Space Symposium last April 2019, then-Secretary of Air Force Heather Wilson gave what even some of these articles refer to as an ominous look 
into what this might really be about. Quote, there may come a point where we demonstrate some of our capabilities so that our adversaries understand they cannot deny us the use of space without consequence. That capability needs to be the one that's understood by your adversary. They need to know there are certain things we can do, at least at some broad level, and the final element of deterrence is uncertainty. How confident are they that they know everything we can do because there's a risk calculation in the mind of an adversary. James, it almost seems like every single New World Order well, agenda is moving forward at what is essentially an accelerated pace. Light speed, one might say. Yeah, um, exactly right. And this is another example of that. So your cyberspace war hashtag has never been more relevant. And this is an example of how it's going to play out with the advanced battle management system that uh, this is part of the test that they're running. They did a previous test in December, and that's uh, from C4ISRnet.com. You have uh, the Air Force just conducted the first test of its advanced battle management system, where they noted uh, the service stated ABMS will require software and algorithms so that artificial intelligence and machine learning can compute and connect vast amounts of data from sensors and other sources at a speed and accuracy far beyond what is currently attainable, as well as hardware updates that include radios, antenna, and more robust networks. However, the service provided sparse detail about what kinds of technologies were used in the first experiment to link Air Force, Navy, and Army equipment together, saying only that new software, communications equipment, and a mesh network linked together assets. It did not say whether artificial intelligence had been introduced to crunch data and send it to users who would benefit from that information. So I think we have a mixture of things going on here. One, of course, is the unfolding of the... Uh, the, the new Space Force idea that uh, obviously the control of space is going to be the next territory, the next battle space domain to be conquered by the elitists. And uh, so this is one element or extension of that. But it's also, I think, uh, part of the hocus pocus smoke and mirrors that they often do about, well, we've got this incredible technology, but we're not going to tell you about it. We're just going to hint at it to make people quake in their boots about the uh, things that are being worked on behind the scenes. Some of which, I mean, I'm sure they do have incredible technologies behind the scenes, but I'm pretty sure we get uh, a lot of smoke and mirrors and distraction on this level of the information uh, pyramid. I'm pretty sure Air Force Times isn't exactly breaking the inside skinny on all of this. Um, but uh, tertiarily, to use a fancy word, uh, this also points to the real the real funding, the real reason uh, for being, essentially, of SpaceX. It's not that, that, oh, that benevolent humanitarian Elon Musk is just, he's just interested in getting humanity to Mars, guys. He has no interest, oh, wait, all of SpaceX's money comes from, well, a significant chunk comes from their relationship with Never a Straight Answer. Of course, uh, supplying the ISS and getting the Crew Dragon ready for, is it going to happen this year? Maybe not at this point. Um, but also, a huge chunk of their money comes from their work with the military, including the Starlink uh, satellites, which, by the way, are more and more clogging up the skies, as people might have noted. Uh, for example, the Telegraph was recently reporting Elon Musk's Starlink satellites light up skies over the UK, saying, Stargazers in the UK have reported seeing trains of bright light shooting across the sky in recent days as Elon Musk's Starlink satellite network grows. One Briton said he had seen as many as 60 of the satellites shooting over the UK yesterday evening. It's getting like Star Wars up there, he wrote on Twitter. Another commented that there were weird and mysterious UFO-like lights spotted in the Somerset sky. 
etc., etc. Well, guess what those satellites are for, folks? It's for conquering the next battle space domain, outer space. And uh, it, 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 there's a little nuggets of that embedded in stories like this one, like the one from Air Force Times that you're reading from here, where it goes on to say, in January 2018, SpaceX launched a secret U.S. government satellite known as Zuma aboard its Falcon 9 rocket from Cape, Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. The mission ended in an apparent, although unconfirmed, failure. SpaceX, however, has denied its rocket was to blame, which sounds to me an awful lot like a story of, oops, well, that satellite failed and we'll never get any data from it, so you guys never have to think about it again, right? Meanwhile, whatever it's doing, I'm sure it is doing up there exactly as intended. Uh, the secret space program continues apace, even as they have successfully psyoped some non-insignificant section of the public who would otherwise be opposed to these plans to believe that space is fake and it's all a hoax. So <laughs> these aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the satellites you're looking for. Space doesn't exist, guys. Don't worry about what we're doing up there. Uh, so unfortunately, we have very little information about what's really going on, but we get little stories like this that hint at it. And uh, I think this is going to be the narrative for 21st century um, fighting. Uh, and let me add for the 8 millionth time that, of course, the big, you know, the 2D chessboard is fake and staged and phony and managed and China versus the U.S. and whatever else phony narratives they're doing are going to be ginned up to give the excuse for the never-ending perpetual military-industrial complex aggrandizement. And this is just another example of that. But... The fighting that takes place and the people that die in such staged and phony and manipulated conflicts are very real. And people die as a result of phony conflicts. If you need more evidence of that, go to CorbettReport.com slash WWI. There was a, a, a ginned up phony conflict that ended in millions of people paying for that uh, those lives with their lives, as is always the case. Unfortunately, we're probably going to see a repeat of that in the 21st century. So... Welcome to World War III, guys. Cyberspace war and biowarfare are going to be important parts of our lives going forward, like it or not. Well, and all the while that this is going on, another sizable portion of people, of course, are worried about the latest, you know, the latest pandemic. While the government wants to tell you we're doing everything we can to save you and your family's life, again, they're, they're playing space war games up. Uh, in other news, James, I guess as far as the grand chessboard goes, Kissinger calls for a new world order again. Uh, Trump's narco-terror indictment of Maduro is already backfiring. Meanwhile, the New York Times parrots U.S. propaganda on Hezbollah in Venezuela. So in some ways, I guess it's, it's business as usual. Really interesting stuff here for our second segment on this New World Next Week episode. Journalists threatened, detained, as multiple countries restrict pandemic coverage. And it starts by noting a century after the Spanish flu of 1918, coronavirus is testing the resilience of independent media around the world as governments exploit concerns over the coverage of the epidemic to clamp down on press freedoms. Questioning of official accounts has drawn fines, police investigations, and the expulsion of foreign correspondents. In some countries, the virus has provided a pretext for governments to pass emergency legislation likely to curb freedoms long after the contagion has been extinguished. 
Saudi Arabia and the UAE have announced fines hundreds of thousands of dollars for individuals deemed to be sharing fake news as Iraqi doctors work overtime to contain the spread of the virus. Authorities in Baghdad said they were temporarily suspending the Reuters news agency's license to work. Egypt said last month it was revoking the press credentials of The Guardian. Eight Turkish journalists are now waiting to learn whether they will face charges. In Azerbaijan, President Aliyev is using the crisis to crack down on free speech. Sir Roger Gale, a rapporteur on Azerbaijan, said, quote, it beggars belief that any head of state would abuse a public health emergency to tighten his grip on power. Police in the Philippines charged a television station owner and an online reporter under a new law. In Hungary, Prime Minister Orban's government has handed Parliament an emergency bill that would formalize a years-long slide from democracy into dictatorship. Honduras has also declared a state of emergency, withdrawing the legal guarantees for journalists. In Brazil, President Bolsonaro moved to indefinitely extend deadlines for freedom of information requests with a late-night decree, and of course in Venezuela. Authorities arrested journalist Darvinson Rojas and interrogated him about his reporting on the country's coronavirus outbreak. Now, who do you think, I'll, James, I know you know the answer to this. Who do you think wrote this to the audience? Just, I mean, that sounds, could be anti-war, Whitney Webb, Dan Dix, any number of amazing alternative media writers. Nope, that's the freaking Amazon CIA Washington Whole Foods Democracy Dies in Darkness post. So much like Dinosaur TV now have their hosts in, you know, their apartments, the Dinosaur Rags have adopted the style of indie media, James. Remember, of course, the, the real, I think, posering kicked in with Swamp Thing in 2016. But this is yet another area where I think the powers that shouldn't be are just failing forward. They're just going for it, James. 100% double underlined exclamation point guarantee that this is the excuse for the next wave of crackdown on online media. So, yes, you're right. This sounds like... Doesn't it sound like, uh, wow, a crusading, you know, let's save the media kind of post from Bezos, Amazon, CIA, what's going on here? Of course the devil is in the details. Of course you can read through the entire article, and I suggest people do, and you'll see, as you point out, yeah, let's talk about Egypt, let's talk about Turkey, let's talk about Azerbaijan, let's talk about Philippines, Hungary. Of course there's a couple of meaty paragraphs on Russia in there, of course. And all of those points are valid points. There really is a crackdown on media going on in those countries, and it is disgusting. But what's the excluded part? of this story. Do you see anything in there about the crackdown on speech online in the free Western world, in the US or the UK or other places like that? Of course not. Not a single peep about that because we need to protect the public from this horrible information that the online independent media is putting out there on social media. Of course the Washington, Amazon, Bezos, CIA, Whole Foods post is going to completely 100% be on board with that agenda to crack down on voices like ours. It's just those evil, you know, Russian government bastards or the people over there that, uh, that they're cracking down on media. But we, we need to crack down on media here at home. So that's that's the rub. That's where the, the, the obviously they're not going to report on the real details of what's going on as we are about to. I, I know you have some related stories to bring up in that regard. Um, but I just want to underline that point that 100% this is going to be the excuse for the big purge of online media. And I, I, I unfortunately, I said the, my prediction for the trend for 2020, end of the internet as we've known it, this 
is going to be it. If we are still on outlets like YouTube by the end of the year, honestly, I will be shocked because this is going to be the excuse. And anyone who says anything against the coronavirus agenda that is unfolding before us right now will be purged because you are killing grandma. You are killing grandma by talking anything against what it, the World Health Organization is saying. So um, this is it. This is the excuse 100% guaranteed. And as you're about to point out, it's already beginning. Well, and you, but you, you got me thinking up other, other angles to all of this. At this, as this is now been widely called that 9/11 in slow motion. We haven't even hit the points of taking off my shoes. Remember that came years after 9/11. It was a long con, and this is the slow motion long con. So we haven't really seen much of what again they kind of have up their sleeves we've read a lot of their papers and we know what's up their sleeves but yeah let's wait for a big old cover story from the washington post on this story and it is lighting up alternative media censorship of david ike is waking people up that's the article from activistpost.com it has all the videos with london reel and the interesting thing, they do have a bit of coverage from the BBC, but they're talking about how it's a good thing. YouTube tightens rules after David Icke 5G interview. And perhaps, again, David Icke is more, much more well-known in the UK. That's maybe warranting a BBC coverage, whereas in the States it might, might not hit as much, I suppose. YouTube has banned all conspiracy theory videos falsely linking coronavirus symptoms to 5G networks. The Google-owned service will now delete videos violating the policy. It had previously limited itself to reducing the frequency it recommended them in its Up Next section. The move follows a live-streamed interview with conspiracy theorist David Icke this past Monday, April 6th, in which he had linked the technology to the pandemic. YouTube said the video would be wiped. James, I just saw a little bit ago, Woody Harrelson forced to apologize and delete his social media post about coronavirus and 5G. Sidebar, remember Woody Harrelson's the crazy conspiracy radio host in 2012. Social media crackdown on crazed conspiracies after 5G masts torched in Liverpool and back here in the States. And as somebody in my chat said, it was like, the state is mandating which software you can use? Indeed they are. New York bans Zoom for online teaching, advises Bill Gates, Microsoft Teams, of course, instead. James, any extra thoughts on those last little related bits? Uh, not really. I'm just saying this is the trend. And ex yes, as you say, this is the beginning of the tiniest sliver of the thin edge of this wedge. We have not seen the end of it, but this is going to be the battle ram. And I should I should point out, uh, I should just let people know, I, everyone knows, uh, for example, Ryan Christian and Jason Burmas and Luke Rodowski, and everyone is getting demonetized. Their channels have been demonetized. I should point out that I, I received that message several days ago as well. It doesn't affect me because I've never monetized a video and never plan to and don't care. I don't want their blood money, but they did demonetize my channel for whatever that's worth, despite the fact I have no monetized videos. So they are just blanket doing this to every online media voice right now. Well, and that's, and that's maybe the thing to point out to folks who might not realize this from behind the scenes. You can get flags on certain videos and they'll say, we're demonetizing this video. And those would all be separate instances. This is now essentially saying, Corporate Report, Last American Vagabond, We Are Change, your whole channel, any video, even if you uploaded a video unboxing some new great toy, it's all demonetized. So on this New World Next Week, 
episode 404, you know, kind of like the error message will start to get as the internet might start to crumble. Another fantastic one, solutions-oriented stories to close out this episode from our friends at activistpost.com. Coronavirus fuels P2P connectivity. Crypto-driven mesh net gives rural towns internet. While the coronavirus wreaks havoc on the economy across the U.S., a number of the 1,737 residents of Klatskiny, Oregon, can't obtain an ISP bid. Situations motivated the town to adopt a decentralized mesh net ISP called Althea, A-L-T-H-E-A, and the network's users are paid in cryptocurrency for relaying. Essentially, a mesh network, as we have talked about many years in the past, is a local network topology that allows people to relay and share bandwidth and route data from and to other participants. If the network goes stronger, it can operate in a non-hierarchical fashion, and the more cooperation, the better the network will perform. Althea's MeshNet service provides people with the incentive to host decentralized ISPs in any community rather than relying on the monopolized services provided by the big cable companies. Klatskiny, Oregon residents aren't the only ones. Folks in Tacoma, Washington as well, so they know what's up in the uh, Pacific Northwest. Althea.net, faster, cheaper, decentralized internet, and that is not an ad. There's also Bitcoin Wi-Fi. There's all kinds of other different things. Again, like a lot of these stories we talk about, it's the idea. It's not the place that does it. It's the idea that everybody can do it. So, James, we actually talked about mesh networks back in 2014 with something that even now seems pretty prescient with what we've seen in the previous year. Hong Kong protesters turned to mesh networks to evade China's censorship. And here we are again, James, at least with some solutions. Exactly. And this is the this is the paradigmatic example of not unmitigated good news. And so I'm glad you pointed out it's about the idea behind this, it's not about the specific way that this idea is being implemented. And I say that because this is a great example of people being motivated by a need, a perceived need. Oh, we need, we need to get around these ISPs. What are we going to do? Oh, why don't we do it ourselves? Why not, instead of waiting for some corporation to come along and provide it to us, or asking mommy or daddy government to make the corporations provide us ISP in the way that we want, no, we make it ourselves, and so we can set up a network, and it's, it's, I think it's done the right way in a lot of different ways, including incentivizing people to become relays and to, to help forward information through the network by incentivizing that through crypto and all of that. I think there's a lot of good ideas in here. But the devil is always in the details. So if you go to Althea.net, where you uh, see all of the, the nice, you know, explanations and everything, and there's just that little line in there, uh, relays get paid automatically for forwarding bandwidth to neighbors, dot, dot, dot. High-speed 60 gigahertz 5G antennas provide speeds of over 200 to 400 megabytes per second. Oh, right, of course, it's going to be the 5G antennas, isn't it? So there's always, there's always a catch in there. That's why I'm not necessarily recommending Althea specifically. But as you say, the idea is the right idea. And I'm sure there are ways to implement it that are not reliant on, say, 5G antennas. So I'm sure there are people in the Corbett Report crowd who have more technical expertise than uh, yourself or myself who might be able to devise a better way of doing this. But I, I think the idea, as you say, is is the right idea. And there are ways that we can understand, learn from this and, and move forward, not only with regards to mesh networking, although I think that is important and this provides a good example of that, but in a lot of other uh, problems that we encounter along the way where we see a problem and we know there's a problem going on, 
Are you going to wait for some corporation to deliver it from on high? Are you going to try to vote harder in November and make sure that your guy gets into the Oval Office so that he can make some corporation do something that will then benefit you? Or are you going to go out there and do it yourself? Uh, I think I know which is going to be the most effective uh, form of actually changing the world. But it does involve work, and that's, that's the rub. So if you're looking for something delivered from on high, you're going to get shafted. And if you uh, want to actually have a solution, you're going to have to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty one way or another. We are smashing the scaradime, as you say, James, with this episode 404 of New World Next Week. In closing, I got tons of visits from the link I put in the show notes last week to my chat stream in Discord, which, sidebar, speaking of Discord, of course, folks reached out to say, hey, they're not super trustworthy, as I know they are problematic. Somebody turned me on to another platform called Riot, which is actually very open source and looks really, really interesting. I just don't know why all the places have to have names like Riot and Discord and I hate this and <laughs> maybe some puppies and sunshine, perhaps. But last week I put the link in the show notes. I got tons of lists, tons of folks to come check it out. We actually made some great new supporting Media Monarchy members from that. Meanwhile, I think maybe some folks forgot that it was actually just a limited time free pass so we'll do it again but i will have to give my tech guys over in discord actually a little more warning next time so james a d programming note this is generally where i tell folks i broadcast generally speaking nine to five monday through friday news music memes and more i need a break brother i need to take easter week off i've had some power difficulties here in the apartment we've got an electrician coming tomorrow and again, I didn't get my, my rock and roll camp at the uh, Boise Music Festival. It was postponed, so I still need maybe a little bit of time off. So I'm going to take Easter week off. But again, the Media Monarchy community never closes, and I always like to invite folks over to check it out, James. Yeah, you and me both, brother, we need a break. Uh, I don't know if people have noticed, but I've been posting to the site every single day, day in and day out, every single day, seven days a week for the last uh, few weeks. And... Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm the hardest working man in alternative media and whatever other, uh, other people say about me, but I've never worked harder in my life than I'm working right now. And, uh, I need a break, but I'm not going to take one. I'm going to keep going until I burn out because this is the most important time of our lifetime. And I'm going to keep doing it until I cannot do it anymore, which may be sooner or later, uh, sooner rather than later, given the way this uh, crackdown is coming on online media. Anyway, uh, let's just keep pressing ahead and do what we can. I hope people will check out your uh, your live stream, and we'll take it from there. James, thanks for uh, three great stories. Yep. Take care. CorbettReport.com reporting to you from the socially close streets of Western Japan. In Walden, Henry David Thoreau famously observed that there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one striking at its root. And there can be no doubt that there are many thousands that are hacking away at the branches of the evil that we see spreading out before us in the name of this pandemic panic, diligently deconstructing the dissembling discourse of the disease doomsayers 
and rightfully so, I count myself amongst them. However, if all we are doing is smacking down the lies that are being spread about this pandemic as soon as they arise, then we run the risk of missing that root of the evil altogether. So allow me, if you will, to take one hefty swipe at that root with my battle axe of truth by clearly stating and rejecting the new governing principle for society that we are being asked to accept on the basis of this pandemic pandemonium. Now, this new governing principle for society, of course, is implicit. I mean, we're going to sign onto it by our silent consent, not our explicit consent, but nonetheless, it rests on a hypothetical, a hypothetical chain of infection that can take place in the event of a spreading infectious agent. Now, keep in mind, this has nothing to do with a novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. This is about a general principle. But the principle holds that if there is a spreading infectious agent of some sort that is uh, hypothetically infecting people around the globe, and you might become infected by this agent, and you might end up passing it on to someone else, who might end up passing it on to someone else, etc., etc. And somewhere down that chain of infection, someone who is immunocompromised might end up becoming infected, and they might be part of that sliver of a fraction of a percentage point of the population who might die from the disease. And if that were to take place, well, of course, every single link in that chain of infection should be classified as a murderer. And in order to prevent such a mass murder from taking place, governments around the world are not just empowered, but actually obligated to implement a sort of de facto medical martial law by following the pronouncements of the duly unelected health authorities to do whatever they deem necessary to prevent such a hypothetical chain of infection from taking place, up to and including quarantining people within the walls of their own homes and or entering those walls to forcibly remove people from their own homes. And at the moment, in most parts of the world, <clears throat> due to lockdown, most of the transmission that's actually happening in many countries now is happening in the household, at family level. In some senses, transmission has been taken off the streets and pushed back into family units. Now we need to go and look in families to find those people who may be sick and remove them and isolate them in a, in a safe and dignified manner. We are being asked to accept this abrogation of our most precious freedoms, including our freedom to travel, our freedom of association and assembly, our freedom from arbitrary detention within the walls of our own home, our freedom of privacy in transaction and interaction, and other hard-fought freedoms that were purchased at the price of our forefathers' blood on the basis of a novel coronavirus that is presenting, presenting a novel existential threat to humanity that has never before existed. But that, of course, is a lie, because every single flu season for your entire life, there have been just such hypothetical chains of infection that have taken place. And I have no doubt, let's put it on the table, I have no doubt that there is someone listening to my words right now who has been involved in some chain of infection that has ended up in some immunocompromised person dying. Never before has that person had to think of themselves as a murderer, 
let alone lock themselves within the confines of their own home to prevent such a murder from ever taking place again. But that is what we are being asked to accept right now. And I want this out on the table, because if we do not clearly articulate this principle that we're being asked to accept, then by our silence, we will con consent to it. We will tacitly, implicitly consent to what is taking place right now, and I want to clearly state it and clearly reject it. Now, there may be some people in the crowd who disagree with me, so first of all, let me put something else out on the table and make it very clear that, of course, None of what I say is to in any way undermine the basic right that everyone has, everyone always has had, and everyone always will have to take whatever precautionary measures they feel is necessary in order to prevent such a chain of infection from taking place, including isolating yourself in your own home, wearing whatever protective gear you want, socially distancing yourself from anyone you come in contact with, or anything else that you feel is appropriate to prevent such a chain of infection. Of course you have that right. But that negative right is now being flipped on its head into a positive obligation on everyone in society to stop all productive human activity, to lock everyone up in their homes, and to treat them as prisoners, tracking and surveilling everything that they do and everyone that they come in contact with on the basis of a hypothetical chain of infection that could take place. And I want that out on the table. If you agree with that principle and you think that is a good thing, then clearly state it. State it to my face. Oh wait, you can't because you are a prisoner within the walls of your own home and you are not allowed into Japan, but you probably think that's a good thing. But at least say it to my digital face. Clearly state that you agree with the abridgment of our most basic freedoms on the basis of this hypothetical chain of infection. And clearly state what, where your line in the sand is. What do you think would be going too far for the government to do on the back of such a pandemic panic? Biometric ID, tracing and tracking every movement of every citizen at all times for the rest of their lives? or uh, the ability to march into people's homes to check for potential infections and forcibly vaccinate them if need be, or any other number of measures that are now coming into view as a result of this panic. Wh where is your line in the sand? Clearly state it so that when that line is crossed, people will see that you are a hypocrite for cheering it on. Unless there is no line in the sand, and you think that governments are justified in doing anything that any presumed health authority says in the light of a pandemic situation. But at least state it openly and on the record. Don't hide behind vague, fluffy, woolly language. Tell us what you specifically, not the agents of the state to whom you outsource your violence, but you would do in order to prevent people from living their lives in the event of a pandemic. There's a lot to think about here, and I hope you will do so. And join me in clearly rejecting this principle that we are being asked to accept right now. And if you do so, I think we will be getting a lot closer to striking at the root of this evil. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com.
Welcome back to Questions for Corbett. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you can tell things are getting serious when there are not one but two editions of the Questions for Corbett podcast in a single week. But things are getting serious out there, and there are a lot of questions that need to be answered, so here's another one of them. This one comes in via email from Diane, who writes, After watching a Ron Paul segment on YouTube on protests against coronavirus lockdowns, I did a search using Google and DuckDuckGo, and very few articles came up about protests against lockdowns. The few articles that did come up framed protesters as anti-lockdown conspiracy theorists. Are there any protests against these lockdowns anywhere that you are aware of? Thank you for the question, Diane, and there is a rather simple answer to this question, and that answer is yes, there are many protests taking place even as I speak all around the globe. On the north side of the state house, by the entrance to the stateroom, the chants of protesters could be heard loud and clear. Watching on TV, the protesters' message wasn't clear, but you may have been able to hear something going on. One of those voices outside the state house belongs to Jennifer Franz. We feel like the virus is um, less of a danger to us than our rights being stripped from us. frustration out here on the streets. They wanted gridlock and they are getting it. Cars as far as the eye can see. We're seeing a lot of signs out here as well that say impeach dimwit, meaning Governor Whitmer, the guy with the cardboard sign. Usually I'm at work right now. A lot of people who are out of work are up here. Our community is struggling. My husband is on unemployment for the first time in our life. And it's unwillingly that we're taking unemployment. We want to go back to work. We have employees. We have paychecks to issue. We have bills to pay. The only stores open are Walmart? That's ridiculous. That's why we're here. A number of Vancouverites aren't drinking the Kool-Aid, and they're getting out and they're getting together here to show the world that we're not okay with unlawful or for orders and, and quarantines and lockdowns. Here. It's a, be ashamed to sit at home and let the government tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. Getting a lot of support too from cars driving by. Yep. Not everybody drank the Kool-Aid. It's good to see. <laughs> 20,000 Pakistanis are stuck in the UAE. They have reportedly registered with the Pakistani consulate on the 3rd of April to be able to return to Pakistan but have so far received no response. And that is why they chose to take to the streets today, flouting the social distancing guidelines. The big story that we're tracking for you this evening, those are images that we're getting to you from the Bandra station in Mumbai, where protesters have gathered. These are migrant labor, we're given to understand, who gathered to protest against the extension of the lockdowns. Freiheit, die für Sicherheit verliert, am Ende alles zwei. Wer Freiheit, die für Sicherheit verliert, am Ende alles zwei. Wer Freiheit, die für Sicherheit verliert, am Ende alles zwei. Wer Freiheit, die
Yes, there are protests happening all around the globe, even as I speak. They are happening across the United States, in South Africa, in Nigeria, in Germany, in India, in other places besides. These protests are happening. So the fact that someone like Diane even has to ask about this speaks to the more underlying problem, which is that the gatekeepers of access to information online, like Google, and increasingly, like DuckDuckGo, who I will note parenthetically, has been getting worse and worse with its search results, I've noticed in recent months, so that it is becoming a Google Lite, much like Startpage.com became a Google Lite a year or two ago. Uh, it is slipping down that path. So the gatekeepers of online information are directing people who would be interested in such information towards mainstream sources that, of course, are going to portray this as crazy anti-lockdown conspiracy theorists who are killing grandma by daring to go out in public without a mask and not observing proper social distancing rules. Uh, this is, of course, the way this information is going to be framed in the mainstream, so no surprise that you are not hearing about this at all there, or to the extent that you are, it is generally by masked reporters who are afraid to go anywhere near these filthy protesters. So if you do want actual information about what is happening with these protests, you are of course going to have to turn to online independent sources of information. Like, uh, if you're looking for information specifically in the U.S. context, I will note that Dell Bigtree the High Wire has been highlighting some of these protests on uh, his YouTube channel, uh, so restreaming some other people's streams of the protests that are taking place in Ohio and Michigan. Or, uh, for example, uh, I recently was a guest on something called Defending Utah Radio. They've recently talked to Idaho Representative Heather Scott about the lockdown happening there and the unconstitutionality of that. Um, so that link will be in the show notes if you're interested in that conversation. Or, Diane, as you point out, yes, Daniel McAdams and Ron Paul, previous guests here on The Corbett Report, were recently talking about this very phenomenon on the Ron Paul Liberty Report in a segment on the people waking up coronavirus lockdown sparking nationwide protests. Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the Liberty Report. With me today is Daniel McAdams, the co-host. Daniel, good to see you. How are you this morning, Dr. Paul? Doing good, because good. I think we can find a few positive things today. Yes. We're, we can. We talk about a few negatives. We usually search for the you know the best things yeah. the positive thing and we occasionally find one today i think i think we can say maybe the, the ice has been broken and they're breaking out and people are getting tired of it and they're being tired of lockdown and maybe it wasn't a good idea so that's um, that to me is good news and uh, there's now demonstrations that people are speaking out and the reason i like this is there's a saying and i endorse the saying is that no matter how authoritarian a government that one has, uh, the people have to endorse it. You know, once the people reject it, uh, you know, the government goes. Sometimes it's slow and tedious, but even the ones that are installed, they get the people's support. And right now, uh, the authoritarianism that we've been living with and uh, all the excesses in our financial system and the medical system, uh, people have tolerated and they like it, and they're still, most people still probably think, yeah, all we have have to do is tinker with the management, but it's also 
people that we're seeing now in the streets are saying, you know, boy, this is enough. Uh, this lockdown doesn't sign American to, to us. And they're going out on the streets and demonstrating. And um, I'm all for that as long as it's peaceful. Yeah. But it, it, it annoys the authorities because they don't want us out of our house. Yeah. <laughs> how can uh -huh. you demonstrate if you have to stay in? How can you demonstrate if you're not allowed to have more than a couple people together? That's you can idea. hardly get your grocery shopping done. <laughs> so it is a challenge, but I think the people are tired of it. And I think they're starting to speak out. I think it's going to grow by leaps and bounds because I think that is the natural thing to happen. As always, the link to that full conversation will be in the show notes in case you want to check it out. But suffice it to say that, yes, there are protests taking place all around the world right now. Yes, people are pushing back in many places, even as I speak. And it is important once again to reflect on the fact that there are still people out there who haven't even heard about this, and the, some of the people who have, have only heard about it from mainstream controlled sources that are trying to frame this as crazy conspiracy theorists. The reason why the first order of the psychological operation that is played out against the public is to convince you that you are all alone is because the real truth, the ground truth that they desperately do not want you to think about is that they need your compliance to make this happen. This is an exceptionally important point. This is the reason why so much time, effort, attention, and energy is directed into propagandizing the public on various things. It is because what you think, what you believe, influences the way you act and what you are or are not willing to accept. You control reality. You control your reality. This is an exceptionally important subject, and it is the reason why propaganda even exists, is to try to convince you you're all alone, you're a fringe wingnut conspiracy theorist, everyone's laughing at you, and if you go step outside your house, you will A, die of COVID-19 immediately, and B, be snitched upon and set up by, by your neighbors and set upon by the jackbooted thugs of the police state. So resistance is futile, stay at home. And literally, I mean, they couldn't make it any more blatant. The propaganda campaign slogan for this is stay at home, literally. So yes, that's exactly what they want you to do. And the the way to, to defy this, the way to end the lockdown is not some occult mystery. It's not, it's not going to require some sort of 18-dimensional chess. It's not going to be some big plan that's going to, okay, well, first we need to do the second, we need to... No, you end the lockdown because the lockdown only happens because of compliance, because people comply with it, because people go along with it. Uh, this is not a difficult point. In fact, it was put uh, in, recently, Jeff Berwick had an, a video up, share this now, and we can end the lockdown by tomorrow morning, where yes, the lockdown is taking place in our minds, and if we go outside, we have ended the lockdown. This is not rocket science, people. And uh, so, yes, I understand people who are concerned about their safety, not necessarily because of COVID-19, but hey, maybe there are people who are concerned about that. So take whatever precautions you want. Um, but for people who want to go outside, go outside. And yes, I understand that you may be subject to the snitches of the, the neighborhood uh, snitch state and the jackbooted thugs of the police state if you 
do so in defiance of government orders if you dare to try to open your business during this lockdown. So there are there is strength in numbers, and that's why it's important to know about these protests that are taking place so that you can have that strength in numbers. And if there is no protest taking place in your area, people are looking to, to me, James, why don't you be a leader and tell me what to do? Okay, I, I, okay, you know what? I'm not a leader. I am not your leader, but I'm going to tell you what to do if for the people out there who need to be told what to do. And I actually, I have this kicking around. I've had this uh, sitting here for a couple of months now because I was planning on doing a Vote Harder video um, to parody the 2020 selection circus back before the world changed forever. But uh, I, I've decided I'm going to use this as a badge. I'm going to give you this badge to each and every person watching this video. You have now been imagined. Here, is, here it is. You have your, your medal. You are now officially appointed the leader of your area. You are the resistance leader in your area, whether that area be your house, your community, your neighborhood, your uh, city, your county, your state, your country, whatever it is. You are now the leader. You personally, I've just passed the baton. You now are the leader of the resistance. You are now empowered to end the lockdown by going outside. And you can do that with people. You can do it by yourself. You can open your business. You've just been empowered by a leader who has told you what to do. So now you are free to go and do it, right? <laughs> anyway, whatever it takes. Um, the lockdown only exists because people comply with it. And I hate to tell people, but mass disobedience, mass non-compliance is going to be necessary in order to combat tyranny. It's going to happen sooner or later. The only problem being, if it happens much later, then unfortunately it will not be able to happen at all because, as you may have noticed, the police state is locking down right now. They are putting every single bar of this prison into place right now. And as each bar gets slotted into place, and then it gets harder and harder. Here comes the surveillance and tracking, and here comes the immunity passports, and here comes the mandatory vaccinations, and here comes the cashless society. It's all coming down. The bars are coming down, shutting in your prison. If you do not disobey, then there will be a time when you cannot disobey. So keep that in mind, and keep in mind the fundamental underlying point of this question. Are is anybody protesting? Yes, people are protesting, and you don't know about it because they don't want you to know about it. So first of all, please do not get your information, at least solely from mainstream sources. Please look for online alternative sources. I've just pointed out a few. There are many more out there. I'm sure helpful people can suggest more in the comment section of this uh, report. And secondarily, yes, the lockdown exists in your mind, and you have to start disobeying at some point. That's the message for today. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 17th day of April 2020. Welcome to episode 376 of the Corbett Report podcast, Lies, Damned Lies, and Coronavirus Statistics. Yes, I am here today to inform you, in case you somehow managed to miss it, that the 
models, projections, guesstimates, case fatality rates, infection numbers, and various other statistics that have been thrown at the public in the past few months to justify the shutdown of the global economy, the implementation of a draconian police state, and the rewriting of all social norms and rules has been a bunch of manipulated, phony hooey. But don't take my word for it. Take the word of the credentialed, respected, university-affiliated, published, peer-reviewed, white lab coat-clad experts who are the only people we're allowed to trust on these matters. There is no evidence around that doing any of these antisocial uh, separation or prohibition or whatever you call it has any effect on the epidemic. With one exception, that it broadened or uh, flattening the curve, what people try to do, is broadening it. And that means it takes more time. And if it takes more time, in the end, you are putting more people at risk because nobody can, for extended periods of time, follow these uh, draconic um, strategies or measurements. So while looking for a specific virus, for example, the coronavirus, you can examine the total population. What you will find is that presumably around 8 or 10 percent of the population will have some kind of virus that makes them sick. But if you examine medical practices, do your tests there to determine who is sick, then of course you would find a lot more positive cases. And if you examine hospitals and take samples there, then you would find even more corona-infected people. That is to say, depending on which proportions of the population you examine, whether it is the whole population, patients in the waiting room, patients in a clinic, or when you examine very ill patients in the intensive care unit that are about to die, you will expectedly find these 7 to 15 percent coronaviruses every time you do a test. However, if they die of the coronavirus or of another virus while just having also corona, that can't be determined for sure. So when you look at the death rates in Italy, you want to know where the tests have been taken, where and how have these few available tests been used. If they were used in a hospital on serious or terminally ill cases, then obviously the corona death rates rise. But uh, let's say that, uh, and, and this is an entirely hypothetical scenario, that uh, that new coronavirus uh, uh, was not detected. You know, no one had noticed it, uh, and no one had found that this is a new entity. And uh, eventually, it killed 10,000 people in the U.S. based on this presentation that uh, you have respiratory distress syndrome, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Most likely, you would have counted that within the bin of influenza-like illness, which, as I said, is killing already 30 to 60,000 people. 10,000 more or less would be very difficult to pick. It would be well within the range of statistical noise. 
and uh, uh, probably no one would have noticed, or uh, perhaps some experts would have said that this year influenza seems to have higher activity and uh, uh, maybe give some advice to increase the vaccination rate. If it were 10,000 deaths, it's very likely that it would not have been noticed. People would not have paid attention. If, if there were some news story, as I say in my article, it, it would have attracted less attention than uh, a game uh, between two indifferent uh, NBA teams. Uh, first, I want to say that in 30 years of, of public health medicine, I have never seen anything like this, uh, anything anywhere near like this. And I'm not talking about the pandemic, because I've seen 30 of them, uh, one every year. It's called influenza and other respiratory illness viruses that we don't always know what they are. Uh, but I've never seen this uh, reaction, and I'm trying to understand why. And I have to say, I really feel for my colleagues that are in public health practice, it's easy for me to sit in the armchair of my office and look at this and observe it and be critical or have ideas. But I really feel for them for, for three reasons. <clears throat> One is that the data they're getting is incomplete to really make sense of the size of the threat. Uh, we're getting very crude numbers of cases and deaths, very little information about testing rates, contagious uh, uh, analysis, uh, severity rates, uh, who's, who's being hospitalized, who is in intensive care, who is dying, what are the definitions to decide if someone died of the coronavirus or just died with the coronavirus. There's so much important data that is, that is very hard to get to, to guide the decision about how serious the threat is this. Other part is that we actually do not have that much uh, good evidence for these social distancing methods. There was just a, a couple of reviews in the CDC Emerging Infectious Diseases Journal, which uh, showed that although some of them might work, we don't really know to what degree, and the evidence is pretty weak. So the third problem is the pressure that is being put on our public health doctors and our public health leaders, and that pressure is coming from various places. The first place it came from was the Director General of the World Health Organization when he said this is a grave threat and public health enemy number one. I've never heard uh, Director General of the WHA use terms like that. Then at the announcement of the pandemic, he said he's doing it because of a grave, alarming, quick spread of the disease and an alarming amount of inaction around the world. That puts a huge pressure on public health uh, doctors and leaders and advisors and a huge pressure on governments. And then you get this, what seems like a cascade of decision-making that really puts pressure on countries and governments, provincial, states, uh, to sort of keep up with this, um, with this uh, action that, that was, you know, that uh, Dr. Hoffman said uh, that we're trying to avoid or should avoid, which is an overreaction. I don't know what's an, uh, what's an appropriate reaction, but I do know that I'm having trouble figuring this out. Doctor, I want to read for our viewers what the CDC says in part about how to count COVID deaths relating to that last issue we just raised. In cases where a definite diagnosis of COVID cannot be made, but is suspected or likely, like the circumstances are compelling with a reasonable degree of certainty, it is acceptable to report COVID-19 on a death certificate as probable or presumed. So doctor, what's the problem with that? 
Well, in short, it's ridiculous. I spent some time earlier today just going through the CDC's manual on how to complete death certificates and part, the parts that were specifically written for physicians. And in that manual, it talks of precision and specificity, and that's what we were trained with. The determination of the cause of death is a big deal. It has impact on estate planning. It has impact on future generations. And the idea that we're going to allow people to massage and sort of game the numbers is a real issue because we're going to undermine the trust. And right now, as we see politicians doing things that aren't necessarily motivated on fact and science, the public's going to—their trust in politicians is already wearing thin. Yes, we are constantly exhorted to listen to the experts and only trust the people who are the credentialed, accredited scientists working in the field, unless they disagree with the alarmist narrative, in which case they must be ridden out of the history book books, airbrushed out of the picture, Stalin, Soviet Russia style. And that is exactly what has happened with the dozens of scientists, prominent uh, researchers in relevant fields who are stepping up to contradict the alarmist narratives that are being put forth right now. And in order to understand that these are not fringe lunatic quacks, these are accredited, credentialed, awarded, respected experts in their field, and all of the other things that we are always told to bow down before, yeah, beautiful. these are those types of people. And in order to document that, I will put on the record a couple of great articles from off-guardian.org that I hope everyone has in their info arsenal. One is called 12 Experts Questioning the Coronavirus Panic, the, and the follow-up is called 10 More Experts Criticizing the Coronavirus Panic, and this involves scientists and researchers like Dr. Sucharit Bhakti, a specialist in microbiology who is a professor at the Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz and head of the Institute for Medical Bi Microbiology and Hygiene, one of the most cited research scientists in German history. You have uh, Dr. Wolfgang Wodarg, German phys physician specializing in pulmonology, politician and former chairman of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, and incidentally, the person I've cited on many occasions as one of the people blowing the whistle on the swine flu pandemic scam of 2009. Uh, Dr. Joel Kedner, professor of community health sciences and surgery at Manitoba University, former chief public health officer for the entire province of Manitoba. Uh, Dr. John Ioannidis, who my listeners will be familiar with from the crisis of science, professor of medicine, of health research and policy, and of biomedical data science at Stanford. Uh, you have Dr. Yoram Lass, uh, an Israeli physician, politician, and former director general of the Israeli Health Ministry. Pietro Vernazza, Swiss phys physician specializing in infectious diseases at the Cantonal Hospital St. Gallen and professor of health policy. Frank Ulrich Montgomery, German radiologist, former president of the German Medical Association and deputy chairman of the World Medical Association. I could go on and on and on and on, as I'm sure you get the picture. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of very prominent people who are speaking out against the panic that is being fomented on the back of the dodgy numbers and questionable science that is this pandemic panic. And uh, while we're throwing names and important uh, perspectives into this mix, I will point people also to the excellent series of videos, Perspectives on the Pandemic, that is being produced by Journeyman Pictures right now, featuring Dr. John Ioannidis, uh, Nut Witkowski, and most recently Dr. David L. Katz, talking about uh, different ways that the mainstream science that has been pushed 
at any rate, um, to, on the back of this panic, is demonstrably wrong and demonstrably dangerously wrong. This isn't just a academic question of, well, how many zeros should, should we add to the total uh, estimate of number of deaths? No, this, this is about what we should do in the event of this spreading panic. What, sh what needs to be done and what will these mitigation efforts, what kind of efforts can we do and what, what will be the result of them? Entire decisions that the entire world economy at this point is based on are resting on these dodgy numbers. So uh, in order to underline that point, let's turn to one of the most important papers in this regard during this entire crisis. It came out on the 16th of March 2020 under the title Impact of Non-Pharmaceutical Interventions to Reduce COVID-19 Mortality and Healthcare Demand. It was written by a team of researchers uh, on uh, at the Imperial College COVID-19 response team led by Neil M. Ferguson. And it start, it has a, in the summary, it starts with some blather about the H1N1 influenza pandemic of 1918 and goes on to talk about two fundamental strategies are possible into how to react to the COVID-19 crisis. A, mitigation, which focuses on slowing, but not necessarily stopping epidemic spread, reducing peak healthcare demand while protecting those most at risk of severe disease from infection, and B, suppression, which aims to reverse epidemic growth, reducing case numbers to low levels, and maintaining that situation indefinitely. Each policy has major challenges. We find that optimal mitigation policies combining home isolation of suspect cases, home quarantine of those living in the same household as suspect cases, and social distancing of the elderly and others at most risk of severe disease, might reduce peak healthcare demand by two-thirds and deaths by half. However, the resulting mitigated epidemic would still likely result in hundreds of thousands of deaths and health systems, most notably intensive care units, being overwhelmed many times over. And it goes on in a fair degree of detail with these very impressive looking charts and graphs that they show here about the different options that are on the table and how they will affect the uh, the number of deaths or the number of critical care beds that will be available versus uh, what will be used in the event of this or that mitigation strategy and how the curve can be flattened or extended or uh, manipulated in various ways by different efforts. And long story short, they do come up with some pretty startling numbers that did become the basis for at least the 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 immediate proximal cause of the incredibly draconian lockdown measures that were introduced specifically in the US and UK, although obviously this did affect decisions being taken place in Canada and many other places around the world to lock down based on some very alarming numbers of the number of deaths that would be likely to occur if this disease were left to run its course, running into half a million in the UK and 2.2 million in the US. Startling numbers that certainly were reported at the time. Uh, Thomas, you've, you've had a briefing with some fairly uh, sobering thoughts behind it. Yes, indeed. I've got a document here which underpins the government's science, uh, the science behind its strategy, uh, and it really does make some uh, really sobering reading, actually, Colin. Um, this is from the Imperial College uh, COVID-19 response team. Um, they're the ones who've been advising the government on this, as I say, uh, and they say uh, that uh, we are in for the long haul here. Uh, they're talking about uh, how they have changed their minds in the last few days 
based on what is happening in Italy. They also say demand here early in the outbreak is proving to be twice as high on hospitals than they had been anticipating, uh, with a high number of uh, uh, patients being admitted to intensive care and a high proportion of those dying. So they have redone the maths. They are looking again at what is likely to happen here in the UK. Uh, and I have to tell you, Colin, that they are talking about, even with the, the kind of measures that we're hearing about today, that um, they're predicting that they might uh, reduce uh, the peak critical care demand uh, by two-thirds and half the number of deaths. Uh, but even with this optimal mitigation scenario, you're still looking at an eight-fold higher peak demand on critical care beds over and above the available surge capacity uh, in the UK. They're talking that even in the most um, favourable scenario, uh, there would be uh, in the order of 250,000 deaths in the UK based on that strategy. Now, what they're saying that the only possible conclusion is that epidemic suppression is the only viable strategy at this time uh, to, uh, in effect, stop the, the virus circulating. Uh, that would have to go on until a vaccine was developed in 12 to 18 months time uh, and that the social and economic effects of those measures to achieve that policy goal will be profound. It's hard to underestimate the significance of this document. The report runs us through a few different ways this could turn out depending on what our responses are. If we don't do anything to control this virus, over 80% of people in the U.S. would be infected over the course of the epidemic with 2.2 million deaths from COVID-19. That 2.2 million deaths also doesn't account for the potential negative effects of health systems being overwhelmed. Think of the number, 2.2, potentially 2.2 million people if we did nothing. If we didn't do the distancing, if we didn't do all of the things that we're doing. And when you hear those numbers, you start to realize that with the kind of work we went through last week with the $2.2 trillion, uh, it no longer sounds like a lot, right? Wait, 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 whoa. Oh, sorry. Did we say 2.2 million deaths in the U.S.? and? 500,000 in the UK. What I actually meant to say was under 20,000. Yes, of course, those numbers have been walked back, but there are any number of explainers out there on the internet that will inform you that no, 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 these numbers haven't been fundamentally changed. It wasn't that the model was completely and utterly off. No, you see, what he was saying, what Neil Ferguson and his comrades there at the Imperial College were saying, is that if no distancing measures, no lockdown took place, then there would be widespread, unbelievable, monumental death, the likes of which we haven't seen in X number of years. But since that took place, that's why it will be under... The problem with that theory is that in the paper itself, they very explicitly and clearly highlight the 2.2 million deaths, the 500,000 deaths figures. But any sort of, well, if we took these measures, it would be under 20,000 is very much you have to scry the tea leaves to figure it out. But don't worry, Neil Ferguson, of course, knew that, that that weasel was embedded in the report itself, which is why he came out on Twitter to clarify. He said, I think it would be helpful if I cleared up some confusion that has emerged in recent days. Some have interpreted my evidence to a UK parliamentary committee, where he said deaths could be kept under 20,000 now, from 500,000 a month ago. 
uh, as indicating we have substantially revised our assessments of the potential mortality impact of COVID-19. This is not the case. Indeed, if anything, our latest estimates suggest that the virus is slightly more trans transmissible than we previously thought. Our lethality estimates remain unchanged. My evidence to Parliament referred to the deaths we assess might occur in the UK in the presence of the very intensive social distancing and other public health interventions now in place. Without those controls, our assessment remains that the UK would see the scale of deaths reported in our study, namely up to approximately 500,000. Interpretation, well, we said 500,000 deaths in the UK because there was nothing in place at the time. That was put in place. Now it will be under 20,000. So what exactly are we testing this against? What is the reality against which this is being tested? Which is to say, like all models, none. It is garbage in, garbage out. And because, it, don't worry, it's actually better than we thought because our our alarmist numbers scared governments into enacting policies that now are exactly what we wanted, and now now there will be less deaths. So don't you guys worry too much about it. And I find it particularly instructive. There was an interesting exchange on that Twitter thread underneath uh, Ferguson's comments where Shyam Iyengar um, writes, Thanks. The 500k figure had spooked quite a lot, though I do think the paper clearly specified the rationale behind the thinking. Lack of controls. Hope we do not reach the 20k figure, though. Prayers and best wishes to all. To which Mike Bennett responds, We sort of needed spooking. Which is a particularly interesting comment in the light of this, because it certainly does raise the possibility. Lead with headline numbers about millions dying on the streets and bodies piling up and get people's attention in order to get the policies that you want in place, and then later to say, well, you put those policies in place, so it has saved you. The magic of the lockdown has saved you from these bodies piling up. Uh, it's almost like that's a strategy that could be employed, i.e. you could release alarming statistics and models in order to scare people. But who is suggesting that that is what's really taking place here? I'm Bonnie Allen in Regina, and here in Saskatchewan, three people have died from the virus so far. And at the moment, fortunately, just one person is in intensive care. The province is still calculating what to expect, so for now, all we can go on is an internal report from two weeks ago. It predicted a worst-case scenario of hundreds of people in the ICU at one time, and as many as 15,000 people in Saskatchewan dying. But that prediction was made before most restrictions came into effect. Kelly, what do you think the strategy was behind releasing these projections? Well, I think there were two objectives. I think the first was, frankly, to scare people. What? Politicians cynically latching on to hyped-up scientific models in order to scare the public into accepting things that they otherwise wouldn't? Surely not. Yes, surely so. It does happen, and it's going to continue to happen as long as people continue to fall for the same lies over and over. Don't worry, the magicians at these institutes, these scientists floating on clouds, who would never have any sort of political motive for anything, and certainly haven't received $79 million of funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation this year alone, as Imperial College has, would never have any reason for skewing any of their results, or making anything seem hyperbolic or alarmist in order to scare people into accepting various policies. No, never. 
except for all the times where we have seen that demonstrably happening in the past. And this is not a trivial matter. Of course, we see similar things taking place in the U.S., where previously we have heard estimates of up to 200,000 Americans dying from people like Anthony Fossey. That's much lower than the 2.2 million that we were being told just a month ago, but it has been revised downwards from 2.2 million to 200,000, 100,000, 81,000. Now, of course, that has been revised downwards again. Now the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington is now estimating a peak of 60,000 deaths by COVID-19 by August of this year. So that continues to get ratcheted downwards. And no doubt, once again, the politicians will be able to pat themselves on the back to say, see, we save you. There would have been millions de dead. Now there are only tens of thousands and we did it. So garbage in, garbage out. But once again, please don't take my word on that aspect of these models. Take, oh, I don't know, Anthony Fossey's. Um I'd like to start with the question of these models, which are now getting a lot of pushback in terms of their reliability mm. when the numbers have swung, you know, 33 percent in just a couple of days. What do you say to Andy McCarthy, who wrote that piece? Well, I mean, the, the, there's a certain validity to it. I have been and still am and will always be somewhat reserved and skeptical about models because models are only as good as the assumptions that you put into the model. And those assumptions that start off when you don't have very much data at all, or the data that you have is uncertain, that you put these assumptions in and you get these wide ranges of calculations of what might happen, you know, 100,000 to 240,000 deaths. But then as you start to accumulate data, data that's real data are likely being influenced heavily by the mitigation uh, programs that you put in, the physical separations, that when real data comes in, then data, in my mind, always trumps any model. And you have to modify sure. the model and the assumptions as you get data in. So I have no problem with people who are critical of, of uh, modeling because modeling is inherently an imperfect science. So I, d I don't really have any quibbling with that. And you just gotta make sure as you collect real data, you rely more on the data than you do on a model. Yes, the models aren't worth the paper they are not written on with the data that is not provided to the public about them, something that viewers of The Corbett Report will know all too well in the context of things like the vigorous and very detailed model of the WTC7 destruction that NIST provided to the public. See, it was just a natural collapse due to fire, and you can see from this computer model, look at this animation on this screen. Don't worry, there is a model behind it, but we cannot release it to you because it would jeopardize public safety. So you can look at this animation and clearly see that this accurately represents exactly what happened on 9-11-2001. And just as in that case, now we have these death estimate models. Millions will die unless you do what we want and then you do what we want. There, you see, we saved you. We saved you from the millions that were going to die in these models that we now admit are flawed. One understands how that game works, but again, for a slightly uh, more detail on this and from someone who knows a thing or two, what he is talking about. Let's go to Del Bigtree's recent conversation with Nut Vitkovsky, Dr. Nut Vitkovsky, who has talked at length about these models and the fact that they are indeed garbage in, garbage out. 
which is to say, worthless. At what point did you break away from believing in the imperial model? How early on did you start suspecting it was wrong? From the very beginning, I never believed in it. Why? Well, because it didn't make any sense. And the, the problem is some people put out models that have no relation to reality, and then you can prove everything, including the opposite. Uh, we should use models that are actually grounded in reality. And if we do that, uh, we get realistic estimates. They can be 10% high or even 20%, uh, but they will not be off by several orders of magnitude. When you say proper models are using real numbers, I think around the world we assumed that's what was being used. What were these models built on? I have no clue, because I couldn't see any information that would allow me to evaluate what type of model was used, other, other than it started with M and ended with auto. <laughs> no qualified or very few qualified epidemiologists were ever being consulted. It was all virologists and MDs, and they don't, are not really trained in understanding the complex nonlinear uh, systems that drive epidemics and that you have to incorporate in your thinking to make sense of the data. Yes, the only thing verifiable about these overinflated, hyped, scaremongering models is that they start with M and end with Autl. But I think we understand how this scam really works, and I think we should know by now, because it's the same scam, fundamentally, that, that's been perpetrated on the public for thousands of years at this point. And whereas in the days of old, it was the priestly class trying to convince the masses that next week the snake god is going to swallow the sun, and if I don't do the special magic ritual, uh, then the snake god will swallow the sun forever and we're all going to die. And lo and behold, the next week, this, the solar eclipse arrives at the predicted time and the special magic ritual goes on and the snake god lets go of the sun and it's because of me and thus you must worship me. I am your king. This is how the scam has always worked. And in the modern context, you have the modern priestly class saying, if you don't do exactly what we say and shut down the entire global economy, lock people in their homes and uh, stop all productive human activity, then millions are going to die. And when millions don't die, you see, it's because of us. Of course, this is inherently unfalsifiable and therefore unscientific. But this is the way the scam works and it has that scientific gloss does it not? So it certainly sounds good until actual scientists come, on, come in and say this is based on nothing. Garbage in, garbage out. Which, even as I point out, even Anthony Fossey comes along and says, well, yes, I, I agree. They're, you know, the, these models are only as good as the data we have to go into it, and we didn't have much data to go into it. So they admit the scam, but only after they have already gotten what they wanted out of it. Uh, and if only, if only these manipulated projections and models were the only fudged numbers that we were dealing with right now, but unfortunately, as I'm sure you are aware, that is not the case. And perhaps the number that is most front and center in all coverage of the COVID-19 crisis is the death count. People are dying left and right, the bodies are piling up. Look at the numbers every day. What is the new death count today? The death count has topped uh, the X number of thousands. Oh my God, the bodies. Ah, 
And this is, of course, what people are concentrating on. And obviously so. You can, you obviously, as Fossey and everyone else admits, you can argue about models and projections and things like that. Uh, but you can't argue about dead bodies, can you? They exist. They are countable. We, there is a body count. So clearly, we have some sort of proof of this. Do we not? How can you fudge this? How could it be possible that you fudge this? And I just am here to, to let you guys know, in case you didn't know, that this is real, y'all. This is real. This is really happening. This is real, y'all. Y'all, this is for real, y'all. This is for real. This is for real. This is Brooklyn, y'all. Family, y'all take it serious. Y'all take this thing real serious, y'all. This is for real. This is for real, y'all. This is for real. This is this is real. This is right here in Brooklyn. This is right at Brooklyn Hospital. Y'all, this is for real. They put the bodies in 18 wheeler, y'all. Please stay inside. This is for real. This is no joke, y'all. This is for real. Hmm, I don't know. You know me, I'm the skeptical sort, so I wasn't convinced the first 47 times that we were assured that this was real, but the 48th is what did it for me. No, look, okay, please understand what I'm saying here. I am not making fun of people who are clearly in mental distress because I see them as the unfortunate victims of an incredible propaganda campaign that has been waged against the public to convince them of the imminent death that we all face from this killer disease. The bodies are piling up, and that is not even some sort of exaggeration. That is literally the way that this is being reported in the tabloid, literally tabloid media, that is the lowest rung of the propaganda ladder that unfortunately has the widest audience, and people are responding to that. They are responding when the New York Post puts their Isle of Tears, Heart Island mass grave for COVID victims in big font with the pictures of the coffins literally piling up on their front page, and when they follow it up with story after story after story about these mass graves that are happening because so many bodies are piling up. New York City may temporarily bury coronavirus victims on Heart Island, we're told, and then the next day drone video may show inmates burying coffins on New York City's infamous Heart Island, and de Blasio admits coronavirus victims have been buried on Heart Island, tell us the hard-hitting news reporters from the New York Post without any context of Heart Island or the practice of burial on Heart Island to lead those who at the very least do not actually read into the story, the people who glance over the headlines, to believe that something incredible and unprecedented is taking place, and you can get that from literally all of the tabloid media, Daily Mail of course being another prime example with a typically Daily Mail-esque headline, Workers in full hazmat suits bury rows of coffins in Hard Island mass graves as New York City officials confirm coronavirus victims will be buried there if their bodies aren't claimed within two weeks after death toll rises to 4,778. Say that three times fast. But yes, these are the types of hysterical, hyperventilating reports that people are getting completely contextless without the actual reporting to let you know that no... This is not some unprecedented new thing that's taking place only because of the mass amounts of people who are dropping like flies from COVID-19. You can garner that from 
obviously different sources. For example, Reason.com had this article up on April 10th, the same day that de Blasio admitted that coronavirus victims have been buried on Heart Island. I can't believe it. Mass graves in the United States. I never thought we would have seen it. But Reason.com had this article up. No, New York City is not running out of burial space due to COVID-19, in which Elizabeth Nolan Brown writes, Century and a half old Bronx burial site sparks panic on social media. The COVID-19 death toll in New York City right now is chilling, more than 4,400 at last count. So are images of coffins being buried in mass graves. It's hard to see things like that and not feel the weight of those numbers all the more viscerally, which makes it all the more imperative to contextualize and not sensationalize those images. Unfortunately, a lot of professional media has been erring on the side of, look at what America has come to. There are so many dead bodies, they have to start hiring people to dig mass graves. The site cemetery on Hart Island is indeed tragic. It has been for the past 151 years. Since 1869, prison labor has been used to bury unclaimed and unidentified New Yorkers in mass graves of 150 adults or 1,000 infants, states the Heart Island Project website. Families of those buried there were only allowed to start visiting in 2014. Since 1980, 68,955 people have been buried in mass graves on Heart Island, notes the project, which is dedicated to telling stories of those laid to rest there. That's around 1,724 people per year, 33 per, per week, or a little under five per day for the past 40 years. New York City Department of Corrections spokesman uh, Jason Kirsten puts the average a little lower, telling Reuters that prison laborers bury around 25 bodies on Hart Island each week. Kirsten now estimates that there are upwards of 100 coffins per week being buried there, so yes, there appears to be a recent spike in burials in these mass graves, but that's not because there are so many dead that the city has run out of burial space elsewhere. It's because more people are dying right now, and that includes people who don't have anyone to claim their bodies. End quote. Well, that puts a little bit more context into this. This is not a new practice. This is a 151-year-old practice. Uh, that the media is just starting to put on their front page and sensationalize, but even Elizabeth Nolan Brown gets it slightly wrong here. It's not simply because there are so many bodies that they, uh, that they now have more bodies to bury, more unclaimed bodies to bury. It is also because, as, as is reported way down at the bottom of some of these New York Post articles, no, the uh, New York Med uh, Medical Examiner's Office has changed their criteria for what counts as an unclaimed body. It used to be 30 days. The, uh, they would hold a body for 30 days. Now they are holding them for 15 days. So there is less of a window for bodies to be claimed, which undoubtedly contributes some to the increase in bodies. That's not to say that people are not dying, that there is no death, but it is to say that even that, even that statistic of how many bodies are, are being buried on Hart Island is itself a product of a chain of decisions that have been made in as this crisis is ongoing. Things are changing, and the, the stats, the way that these numbers are being manipulated actually changes the outcome of how many bodies get sent to Hart Island, amongst other things. And it's important to understand as something that many of the uh, dissenting scientific voices are pointing out right now, so many of the different statistics and measurements and ways that we could theoretically get a handle on what actually is happening through numbers are not being are not reliable because the criteria are being changed in the middle of this crisis. 
so that we can't compare apples to apples with any of these numbers on so many different levels, one great example of which is the simplest of all the questions. There is a body count. This is not some theoretical pie-in-the-sky thing. People, well, have people? People have died from a disease. How many people? This should not be a difficult thing to determine, but it is because, of course, that stat continues to change, or the, the metric by which that stat is calculated continues to change, because it is a calculation. It is an estimation. It is something that is written down on a death certificate by a doctor working on certain guidelines. So here's a prime example of that. You may have seen this very scaremongering headline in recent days. Uh, this one, let's take it from The Guardian. It was in the New York Post and elsewhere, but on The Guardian has New York City coronavirus death toll jumps past 10,000 in revised count. Revised count? What does that mean? So as this story goes on to say, New York City has revised its COVID-19 death toll sharply upwards to more than 10,000 people hitting an important psychological milestone. We're in the five digits now, people. And it happened overnight, just like that, because they changed the criteria. With the city now firmly established as being at the heart of the global coronavirus crisis, and it jumped into that top position because of this change. The soaring death toll has been fueled by the adding of 3,778 people who were not tested for COVID-19, but are presumed to have died from it. All right, well, there you go. So this is the criteria that we're using. Well, they probably had it, so let's just add them. And now it's 10,000. Well, there you go. So as you can see, we cannot take these numbers at face value. They are judgment calls. And you might agree with the judgment that's being made, but the underlying point is that the numbers are clearly a political product. They are the result of guidelines that are being issued and judgment calls that are being made by not even political figures. We're talking about appointees who were not elected by anyone. And in this case, quite specifically, of course, uh, in the U.S. context, we're talking about the CDC, and that's the example we can turn to. We, we already heard earlier in this uh, program about Dr. Scott Jensen uh, 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 talking about the ways that the CDC has changed their death coding guidelines for COVID-19 and how he, as a practicing doctor, finds that absolutely incredible. Um, and he talks about that. So I, I will throw you back to that interview. I, I suggest you check it out in its entirety for more of that context. But let's look in that at that in some more detail. Let's take it from the CDC itself, which on March 24th, 2020, issued COVID-19 alert number two, new ICD code introduced for COVID-19 deaths, introducing U07.1 as a new uh, ICD code, a, uh, a, a basically a code for death certificates that to code for a COVID-19 death. And if you read through this document, it says, will COVID-19 be the underlying cause? And it says the underlying cause depends upon what and where conditions are reported on the death certificate. However, the rules for coding and selection of the underlying cause of death are expected to result in COVID-19 being the underlying cause more often than not. So they admit they are changing the guidelines specifically to make COVID-19 more likely to be classified as the underlying cause of death. And in a, a, a later section, it says, what happens if the terms reported on the death certificate indicate uncertainty? Well, yeah, that's a good question. What if we don't know exactly what the cause of death was? It says, if the death certificate reports terms such as probable COVID-19 or likely COVID-19, these terms would be assigned the new ICD code. Please bear in mind what that is saying. If it is prob uh, probable or likely COVID-19 related, then it was 
cause of death COVID-19. That's how you quote it. And it is saying it is not likely that NCHS will follow up on these cases. They are letting the doctors know, don't worry, we're not going to check into it. We're not even going to we're not even going to examine it. Ultimately, you just code for it. It's a COVID-19 death. Just add it to the death number, please. They are telling doctors outright to do it. And there's more information about that. They followed up in April of 2020 with vital statistics reporting guide uh, guidance report number three, talking about cause of death reporting specifically when it comes to COVID-19 and more detail goes into it there. So I will put that link in the show notes for you to follow. But you don't, again, don't take my word for it or don't take the CDC's own documentation for it. You can, of course, get this from the horse's mouth. In this case, the horse being Deborah Burks. Uh, can you talk about your concerns about deaths being misreported uh, by coronavirus because of either uh, testing yeah, or standards for how they're characterized? So I think in this country, we've taken a very liberal approach to mortality. And I think the reporting here has been pretty straightforward over the last five to six weeks. Prior to that, when there wasn't testing in January and February, that's a very different situation um, and unknown. There are other countries that if you had a pre-existing condition, and let's say the virus called you to go to the ICU and then have a heart or kidney problem, some countries are recording that as a heart issue or a kidney issue and not a COVID-19 death. Um, right now, we're still recording it. And we'll, I mean, the great thing about having forms that come in and a form that has the ability to market as COVID-19 infection, the intent is right now that those, if someone dies with COVID-19, we are counting that as a COVID-19 death. Let's underline this point for the heart of thinking. That number that's being flashed on your TV screens and on the front pages of newspapers and on websites every single day that is being flashed in front of you, the number of deaths, the number of bodies that's being piled up, is a padded number. It is being generously added to by a generous classification that anyone dying with COVID-19 is dying of COVID-19, not a trivial distinction and not some fancy flight of conspiracy theorizing. It is being admitted to by the officials in charge of doing this themselves. And just in case there was any doubt, this is not simply an American phenomenon. This is happening all around the globe. You might recall that just last month I was answering the question, what's up with the Italian mortality rate on Questions for Corbett, where we looked at the incredible numbers coming out of Italy, and I mean incredible, incredible in the most literal sense, because they are not credible. Uh, and I went through that in some detail in that uh, edition of the Questions for Corbett podcast. I hope you will go back and uh, watch or rewatch that one. I think there was a lot of good information in it, but uh, that type of information is being compiled um, by some of the people who are diligently deconstructing the dissembling discourse of the doomsday disease peddlers. Uh, like offguardian.org, off-guardian.org, which, as I say, is doing incredible work on this issue. And one example of that is an article they posted up a couple of weeks ago on COVID-19 death figures, a substantial overestimate, where they note some of the different tactics 
and essentially the same tactic that's being deployed by multiple health ministries in multiple governments around the world right now. For example, again, as we noted in that Questions for Corbett that I just mentioned, Professor Walter Ricciardi, advisor to Italy's health minister, explained this, the Italian incredible number of deaths being reported, was caused by the generous way the Italian government handles death certificates. The way in which we code deaths in our country is very generous in the sense that all people who die in hospitals with the coronavirus are deemed to be dying of the coronavirus. They go on to talk about Germany. On March 20th, the president of Germany's Robert Koch Institute confirmed that Germany counts any deceased person who, who was infected with coronavirus as a COVID-19 death, whether or not it actually caused death. <laughs> huh. Ireland, Northern Ireland's HSC Public Health Agency is releasing weekly surveillance bulletins on the pandemic. In those reports, they define a COVID death as individuals who have died within 28 days of first positive result, whether or not COVID-19 was the cause of death. They're openly admitting it. And one of the craziest actually comes out of England, where uh, this article notes, NHS England's Office of National Statistics releases weekly reports on nationwide mortality. Its latest report, at the time of this article, uh, week 12, March 14th to 20th, was released on March 31st and made special mention of COVID-19, explaining they were going to change the way they report the numbers in future. The ONS system is predicated on the registration of deaths, meaning they count not the number of people who die every week, but the number of deaths registered per week. This, naturally, leads to slight delays in the recording of numbers, as the registration process can take a few days. However, with coronavirus deaths, since it's a national emergency, they are now including provisional figures, which will be included in the data set in subsequent weeks. This leaves them wide open to, either accidentally or deliberately, reporting the same deaths twice, once provisionally, and then once officially, a week later. Just lunacy on top of lunacy piling up, as always, in the name of this crisis. It's a national emergency. We have to change the game as it's being played in the middle of the game so that we can change the score on the scoreboard. And that score, of course, is the number of dead bodies. It is a morbid and disgusting practice that is being played right now. It is, a, uh, unfortunately, a sport that is being played by these health ministries to see what kind of tally they can get on their scoreboard. It is a macabre game to be sure, and it is taking place to scare the public, to alarm the public. And also, of course, there is the monetary incentives that come along with this, as Dr. Scott Jensen points out in that interview I referred to earlier. Uh, the, uh, the medical system, actually, the doctors benefit from having patients dying of COVID-19 and being put on ventilators. They literally profit from it. But, of course, we're not supposed to look at the dollar incentive of these saintly priests in the white lab coats. Now, it gets even crazier when you really start to think about it, because you would think that in the event of some sort of pandemic, uh, the most basic number, the most simplest number that you could possibly come up with is the case fatality rate for the disease, because that seems like it's a pretty, again, straightforward thing to note. This, as its name implies, of course, is a ratio that compares the deaths from a certain disease to the total number of people diagnosed with the disease. So we've already seen that the numerator on that ratio, the deaths from a certain disease, can and is 
manipulated. Well, the denominator, surely at least we have that, right? The number of people diagnosed with the disease. I mean, that's just, again, this is just a binary. Either they have it or they don't. They were diagnosed or they weren't. This is pretty straightforward. How can you even fudge a number like that? Well, just ask someone like Wolfgang Wodarg, who we did hear from at the beginning of this episode. And again, the, the links to all of this are in the show notes, so please uh, please do make use of that resource. But let's take this from a different source. This time, Kevin Ryan over at his blog on digwithin.net, where he had a recent post called Has COVID-19 Testing Made the Problem Worse? And that article starts by noting concerns about the virus SARS-CoV-2 that causes the disease called COVID-19 have centered around reported mortality rates. However, errors in reporting those rates have led to confusion regarding the true health impacts. Because estimated rates are dependent on the test used to identify infected patients, understanding that test and its history could lead to much-needed clarity. Errors in reported mortality rates have come from mistakes in calculation. An example has been equating the measured case fatality rate, deaths divided by patients actively infected, with the actual mortality rate, deaths divided by patients who were ever infected. The latter number is unknown and will not be known until antibody teeters can be performed to see who has previously been infected. But that actual mortality rate is expected to be much lower, perhaps around 0.3%, as estimated by an epidemiologist from Stanford University, in that case referring to Dr. John Ioannidis. Another common error has been attributing the deaths of all infected people to COVID-19, regardless of other pre-existing illnesses. This error has been magnified by governments mandating that all deaths of presumptive patients be listed as deaths from COVID-19, even if the patient was never tested for SARS-CoV-2 at all. The mortality rate errors would be further worsened if there were errors in testing for the presence of the virus. What is becoming increasingly clear is that there have been serious questions regarding the reliability of that testing. The test in question uses a technique called reverse transcriptase quantitative polymerase chain reaction, RT-QPCR, to identify the presence of RNA from SARS-CoV-2. Testing follows different protocols in different countries, and the first problem was seen in China, the reported origin of the virus. And as that article goes on, uh, Kevin Ryan points out the Chinese mystery of a peer-reviewed published article in the Chinese Journal of Epidemiology that was published on March 5th, 2020, that concluded that nearly half or even more of patients that were testing positive for SARS-CoV-2 in the Chinese tests that they were using uh, did not actually have the virus. In other words, half of the results were false positives. And that study was withdrawn uh, when the, and the data underlying it was also withdrawn, so it is not available for review. When the doctor in, uh, the, who was leading the study was asked for explanation, he said that he could not cite a reason for withdrawal of the paper, only saying it was a, quote, sensitive matter. And uh, the, the mystery uh, deepens from there. But yes, I mean, there have been indications that the Chinese test was giving as much as half false positive results. Uh, and then Kevin Ryan goes on to break on, uh, down the WHO guidance and testing, and then the US test, which was developed uh, uh, separately. So there's there's a lot of information in there. A lot of other sources have been talking about the, the problems involved in this testing. But anyway, the point I hope 
stands that, yes, even the denominator in that case fatality rate cannot be taken at face value. So even some of the most basic information that we would need in order to get a handle on the real scale of what is happening here cannot be taken at face value. I mean, even the people who are in involved in creating the rules and guidelines would admit that this is a this is a judgment call. And even if you believed they were doing it all for the best purposes, they can still get it wrong. And it still changes the game in the middle of the game so that we cannot compare apples to apples and we can see gigantic spikes in infections or in number of dead on any given day because of changes that take place in the way that these things are being calculated. And I could go on and on and on and on about the statistics and the tests and the various ways that the numbers that they are using to scare you with can and are being fudged, manipulated, cooked, and otherwise hyped. But I hope, at the very least, I've given enough information that you can follow the various things that I've talked about. Again, all of the sources are in the show notes in case you need to refer back to them. And there are many, many other cookie crumb trails that we could follow along these lines, but I think it's important to come down to the bedrock question. So why is this important? Why does it really matter to have all of these numbers actually pinned down and be able to compare apples to apples and truly get a handle on what's going, going on right now? And I think that should be obvious. As we see, as I've pointed out in this podcast, in the recent past, we are plunging into the greatest depression. The numbers added to the American unemployment rolls in the past four weeks have now topped 22 million people. It is absolutely unprecedented what is happening right now on the result of the hysteria that has been generated by these numbers. And these numbers are causing people to go into mental distress and have breakdowns and have viral videos showing the bodies piling up and other such things. It is causing insanity and it is being used as a justification for the erection of the Corona world order, which I also recently talked about here on the podcast. And I think a good article for getting down to that base root of what is going on and why it is important to be exposing these the statistical chicanery that's taking place uh, was published uh, to whatsupwiththat.com in the last uh, week by Charles Rotter. It's an article entitled Coronavirus Death Predictions Bring New Meaning to Hysteria. And in that article, Rotter goes on to write, uh, fact is the epidemic worldwide, far from growing exponentially, is slowing. And that was to be expected per what's called Farr's Law, which dictates that all epidemics tend to rise and fall in a roughly symmetrical pattern or bell-shaped curve. AIDS, SARS, Ebola, Zika all follow that pattern. So does seasonal flu each year. COVID-19 peaks have already been reported in China, South Korea, and Singapore. But as this entire our, uh, podcast goes on, to say, essentially, well, can we trust any of those numbers? But anyway, importantly, Farr's law has nothing to do with human interventions, such as social distancing to flatten the curve, and indeed predates public health organizations. It occurs because communicable diseases nab the low-hanging fruit first, in this case the elderly with comorbid conditions, but then find subsequent fruit harder and harder to reach. Until more or less now, COVID-19 has been finding that fresh fruit in new countries, but it's close to running out. So while many people assume that China contained its epidemic with draconian regulations, we actually have no evidence of that. Even the New York Times admitted South Korea recovered far more quickly with measures nowhere on the scale of China, 
Although, of course, the Times still attributes that to human intervention, which assigns no role to Mother Nature. When the coronavirus epidemic ends and the public health zealots inevitably slap themselves on the back for having prevented their own ridiculous scenarios, don't buy it. This isn't to say that through thorough handwashing several times a day and not sneezing and coughing in others' faces won't help. It will. But without the authoritarian and economically devastating measures the U.S. and other countries are taking that are wrecking the world economy, there will be no apocalypse now or in the future. The streets are empty not because of direct effects of the disease, but from fear and from government dictates, as in a cognate of dictatorship. End quote. And that's what it comes down to. We are living through a period of dictatorship. Openly so, where governors who are being questioned as to where they derive the right to shut down businesses or to say, this is an essential service, this is not an essential service. Where, where did you derive that authority? Who, how did that land in your lap? They're saying, well, we, we're doing it now and you can ask me later because we're, it's an emergency. It is a dictatorship that is happening right now. Any pretense of any sort of Bill of Rights in the U.S. context or constitutions or any other sort of legal documents in a, whatever country you happen to live in are being exposed for what they are right now, which is pieces of paper that uh, just have some words written on them, but certainly the people who presume to rule over you do not have to follow them. And I think the underlying point that someone like Rotter is making there is that these numbers are important because they, this essentially is a narrative that is being given to the public right now on the back of these numbers. Look, look at this death toll. It keeps going up. Look at these infection numbers. It keeps going up and up and up. And look, oh, look, we can, you know, if we don't flatten the curve, we're all going to die. And because of this statistical chicanery and these projections and models and all of this, all of the other tricks and tactics that um, I'm exposing here and many, many more that we don't have time to go into, they are creating the narrative that they want. So what we're going to need to do is to lock everybody in their homes and you will not get out until you have a vaccine or can be proven to have some sort of immunity and you will be followed and tracked and surveilled for the rest of your life and we will have to come in and make sure that you have the social credit score with the QR codes and the UBI and everything else that goes along with the Corona World Order in order to save you from the snake god. I mean from COVID-19. That is the narrative. And unfortunately, what this demonstrates, what the lunacy of the last few months has demonstrated, is that control of that narrative, the ability to create a narrative like that, is the underlying fundamental control of society. Because as I pointed out in Questions for Corbett that was recorded just 24 hours ago, yes, the lockdown is happening in your mind. The lockdown happens because there is mass compliance with it because people believe these numbers unquestioningly, these numbers that are clearly and admittedly being fudged and manipulated and finessed and generously coded and all of the other words that they use to describe the cooking of the books that's going on right now, because people believe in that narrative that is being uh, forced on us on the back of those manipulated numbers, they will self-quarantine and self-isolate and do all of the things, do anything that the government says. Oh, I needed an immunity passport now? Okay. Oh, I need a, we, we need to get uh, special QR code apps and that'll trace us and give us green or red scores? Oh, okay. All right. 
Well, I guess that's going to happen now. Oh, mandatory vaccinations? Well, look, I mean, look, look how many people are dying. I guess we have to do this. So you understand, I think, why it is so important. This is not an academic exercise to question the numbers that are being put forward here. And look, I am not coming down and saying this is definitely this and this is definitely that and I this is the real number and this is the fake number. No, I'm saying there is so much confusion being sown right now that of course we do not have a handle on all of these numbers and what they really mean, but that is the point. And the point, again, is that the, if they can create a narrative, then that is a switch that has been put in place. And they will flip that switch whenever they need to in order to enact whatever political policies that they want, as long as we go along with the narrative, as long as we've demonstrated that we will respond when they flip that switch. They will flip that switch again. Do you think they will not? And it very well could precipitate in a situation where, oh, you crazy conspiracy theorists, you want this lockdown to end? Okay. Lockdown over, everybody out. Okay, everybody enjoyed the sunshine for a month or two. And then, uh-oh, second wave, you crazy conspiracy theorists. See, it's spreading again. Look at the numbers. Look at the numbers. They're going up again. Look at these mass graves that have been there for 151 years. Look, look, see what you did, you crazy conspiracy. So if they can control that narrative, then they can control what happens as a result of this. In the, They can create a new second wave, again, out of whole cloth if need be. There are many scenarios that I, I think we can all imagine playing out as a result of this, but it all comes back down to controlling the narrative by controlling the statistical narrative. I mean, you, the numbers don't lie is the old adage, isn't it? When, in fact, as we know, there are lies, damned lies, and statistics. So, the underlying point of today's podcast, in case you did not get it, is that no, you should not trust these numbers that are being thrown around at face value. Know that even such a number as the death count, which you would think is a simple question of adding up the number of bodies piled in a room or something, is not that simple. It is a political calculation. It is a judgment that is being made right now, and it can be manipulated to pad those numbers. Please keep this in mind, and please share these facts with other people who are literally melting down and losing their minds over the hysteria that is being generated right now on the back of these lies. Once again, I would like to remind you that all of the things that I'm talking about, all of the articles and videos, are linked up in the show notes. Please go back to the original sources of this. Please go and study what these different experts are saying on both sides of the issue and come to your own conclusions. But I think it is vitally important that we have this conversation right now because 